The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to welcome our country's veterans and members of our military who are listening from remote outposts around the world today. Thank you for your service, and please... From all of us to all of you, stay safe out there. My guest today is acclaimed sociologist and author, Dr. Clem Brooks. He's here to talk about how post-9-11 counterterrorism measures have dramatically affected our individual liberties, as well as how Americans really feel about warrantless surveillance, extra-legal assassinations, and holding terrorism suspects at Guantanamo for over a decade without trial. Before Brooks joins us, let me mention that he completed his undergraduate work at Oberlin College and received his master's and Ph.D. from the University of California at Berkeley. Upon receiving his doctorate, Brooks joined the faculty at Stony Brook University. Then in 1995, he moved to the sociology department at Indiana University, where he teamed up with Jeff Monza to author three eye-opening books. The first was published in 1999, Social Cleavages and Political Change, Voter Alignments and U.S. Party Coalitions. The second was titled, Why Welfare States Persist, The Importance of Public Opinion in Democracies. Their latest collaborative effort, which was released this year, Whose Rights, Counterterrorism, and the Dark Side of American Public Opinion, is a riveting look at how fear-mongering causes the public to tolerate and even cooperate with surrendering civil liberties protected by law. If you haven't picked up a copy of this book yet, I want to urge you to do so because this puts issues such as the revelation that the government ordered Verizon and other telcos to turn over phone records without warrants or any suspicion of wrongdoing into a broader context. Let me add that Dr. Brooks has been the recipient of numerous National Science Foundation awards and is also an in-demand speaker on the subject of how mass opinion affects politics, elections, and public policy. It's my great pleasure to welcome to our program today a social scientist who knows more about our attitudes on the war on terror than many elected leaders do, Dr. Clem Brooks. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Brooks. Thank you, Rebecca, and for all the kind words. I want to open today's program by going straight to this Verizon scandal, which is unfolding as we speak, because I think this goes right to the heart of the point you make in your latest book. So let me ask you this. Whatever happened to needing a warrant to access phone records? Well, what Jeff Manza and I are interested in and who's right, and what we've been puzzled by is how oftentimes there is such a close coupling between what Americans want and what the government delivers or signals it's delivering 
Now, when it comes to wiretapping and domestic surveillance, what we and a lot of other scholars have been puzzled by is, well, there's some real complexities. Americans don't want to be surveilled. And generally, when we ask questions in a way that highlights some of these difficult and really complicated trade-offs of civil liberties and national security, well, Americans want to feel safe. They also very much want to safeguard their civil liberties and to be free of unnecessary and unprovoked and warrantless snooping. And so I think you've hit on one of the issues that it's yet again coming around today. And I think this is really one of the big, uh, the big paradoxes we're trying to unpack in this study. Absolutely. I mean, as I understand it, the reason warrants exist is so that law enforcement has to show some probable cause before they're permitted to have access to records or premises. And, and warrants are also very specific. Uh, for example, a warrant to search your house doesn't necessarily include searching your car. But in the case of Verizon, we have no probability of cause and, and, and no limitations. So what do you make of this? Well, one of the, I think, really um, powerful metaphors that's been used to characterize American government response to 9-11 has been, setting aside all the um, proportional response, critics have used the metaphor of a perpetual motion machine. And where I think this critical tradition, it's work that we haven't done, but we discuss it in the book, where it really gains traction is the idea that when there's a horrendous attack and 3,000 dead. What can be done? The public is clamoring. There's such a, there's such a um, incredible sense of outrage and injustice. If it's the case that law enforcement and existing special operations and spy agency practices aren't enough, in some ways, what is the government to do? Well, one response that it maybe is understandable in the context is, let's take off the gloves. Let's use new measures. And let's, in some ways, be careful about raising the standard too high for shadowing suspicious groups, for maybe vacuuming up a lot of international banking and Internet and email. Yeah, traffic. but let's, let's be clear. This wasn't shadowing certain groups. This was all records of all callers. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the, what you mentioned, you know, to bring things up to the current period, as you, as you say, I think what... You know, what's probably, um, what's probably critical is this new PRISM program reported on by the New York Times, where essentially it's not just Verizon or the telecoms anymore. It's Internet providers that for some seven years, according to Times coverage, they've basically been petitioned under the Patriot Act to uh, relinquish a lot of detailed behavior and information about the Internet and email and social media behavior of individuals. Now, there's some question about whether this is Americans non-Americans. The bigger issue is that this is, as you alluded to, it's not entirely clear what the legal groundwork of it really should be. Patriot Act provides a very comprehensive and a flexible groundwork for the government under any, any kind of suspicion or any kind of claim of suspicion of national security issues to essentially suck up all this information directly by petitioning telecoms, internet providers, networking sites, or by essentially doing it through NSA means. More but here's specific. my question. Why is this any different from wiretapping and the laws that govern wiretapping? You need a warrant for that. Well, the key, I think the key part where our book picks up what's really a, a sort of a surprising part of this perpetual motion machine is that once some new post-9-11 counterterrorist measures were laid in place, and it's really the Patriot Act that's the really remarkable one, just a month and a half after the 9-11 attacks, mm -hmm. the Patriot Act is rolled out. 
Now, what it does is it essentially provides all sorts of new mechanisms that are essentially legal and lower the bar for all sorts of um, new surveillance operations and all sorts of new information gathering that, as you've alluded to, may not necessarily have, certainly prior to that, wouldn't have any legal basis. Now, in terms of the NSA wiretapping that was initially warrantless and then gets given legal, legal retroactive um, standing in 2008, yeah. what this really is doing is something that's a whole vector of, of greater surveillance of international banking transaction. You know, basically, from what we know, um, almost any kind of potential, anything that goes through fiber octave cables that can be tapped. So what this essentially is, is, is doing, and this is where our study took its point of departure, here's a whole new set of machinery. Some was initially non-legal, some was legal. By now, we think there's a lot of, um, a lot of legal basis laid through new acts, such as the 2008 uh, FISA Act, reauthorization of the Patriot Act. These are things that, on paper, are legal, but what civil libertarian critics have charged is, well, regardless of the justification, this is a whole new shift in the, the balance of liberty and security, and it's really one that really shifts things very much towards um, a uh, more traumatic limitation and conditionality of liberties and a much more greater power of government to really vacuum up all sorts of information. Well, you and Monza must be feeling very prescient these days because we've got this convergence of the very kinds of civil liberties that you discuss in your book. Uh, we've got the IRS uh, persecuting Republican supporters, and now we've got these recent challenges to the Second Amendment uh, by limiting the types of weapons which can be owned. And now we've got this surveillance issue uh, popping up. So you must be sitting back and saying, boy, did we call it or what? Well, I think we're, uh, you know, we're we're definitely struck by, and maybe not that surprised, that this is a this is a conflict that hasn't gone away. It didn't go away. Certainly, when Barack Obama was reelected, uh, when he was initially elected, and this is something that there's a lot for scholars to study and for constitutional. Absolutely. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but on that note, we have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the dark side of American public opinion. You're listening to the Costa Report. This Legal Minute is brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Experienced attorneys providing professional legal services to the Central Coast for 85 years. Hello, this is attorney Stephen Wagner with your Legal Minute. Have you ever said to yourself there ought to be a law for that? Well, often there is. In this segment, I will address the issue of social media and hiring practices, and specifically the potential employer's right to snoop around in social media networks to gather information about the potential employee. From the employer's perspective, social networking sites must seem like a treasure trove or petri dish, overflowing with valuable information. The hot-button legal issue that has arisen recently relates to the employer's request, or worse yet, demand for the candidate's password and or username. It is this conduct by the employer that has sparked outcry and controversy based on privacy rights, and this has led to legislation and the enactment of laws that now prohibit employers from making such demands or requests. Such is the case in California and several other states. It would now seem that the lid has been placed back on the Petri dish. 
However, it is important to note that employers still have a right to access all public information. That is, anything the potential or current employee chooses to share, publish, or make public. In other words, these laws do not protect job seekers from their own stupidity or indiscretions that they decide to gloat about by publishing their escapades on the World Wide Web. So it seems that discretion is still the better part of valor. This is Stephen Wagner, and that's your Legal Minute. Brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Selected in 2013 as one of the top law firms in the United States by Martindale Hubble. Michael Olson's first law of the food chain. Agriculture is the foundation upon which we build all our sandcastles. That's right, folks. No surplus of food, no sandcastles. So before we all get upset from the dust and noise of agriculture, let's get together Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show goes behind the scenes of the industry that keeps us all civilized. If you have a comment about the first law of the food chain, tell me, Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSCO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating or radio on the food chain. What day was that? This is Sylvia Panetta inviting you to join us for the final forum in this year's Leon Panetta Lecture Series. On Monday, June 10th, we'll focus on Mideast turmoil, chaos, or reform. Secretary Panetta will moderate a discussion with former U.S. Senators Richard Lugar and Joe Lieberman. Also invited are Ehud Barak, former Israeli Prime Minister and Minister of Defense, and former Senator Olympia Snow. What is the future for democracy in this region? Please join us Monday, June 10th, 7 p.m., KSCO. When the going gets tough, you need to call Aldolfo Garcia. Recently, we needed some work done here at the radio station. We called Community Tree Service. That's Adolfo Garcia's company. He showed up immediately from the phone call. We said what we wanted done, which was a huge amount of work done. He and his staff were here at 8 o'clock the next morning. They followed all safety procedures. Community Tree Service are fully insured, and I was very impressed at the way they cleaned up the area after they'd finished working and clearing a huge amount of brush and trees. I love, love, love Community Tree Service. Adolfo Garcia is the owner of a local business. You can reach them at communitytreeservice.net. You can reach them at 763-2391. If you've got a job to do, when the going gets tough, Community Tree Service gets going. I love this company. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is acclaimed social scientist and author, Dr. Clem Brooks. So in your recent book, you reveal that Americans claim to be passionate about protecting civil liberties, but when faced with a threat like 9-11, in some ways we cooperate with having our civil, civil liberties reduced or even taken away for the sake of security. So let's talk about that for a moment. We've used this idea of the dark side to capture what was surprising to us. And it's really two things. One is that, like you say, there's something of a reflexive support for government in a time of crisis. And this is something unconscious. And when government is given great new powers, powers that may be, um, they might have some risk, certainly some risk for liberty and human rights and the rule of law, this isn't necessarily a neutral thing. The second part of this, what we call the dark side, is something that um, I think is equally surprising. Sometimes when a willingness to support new government coercive activities, and maybe as an example, one we might think of now is the use of drone strikes against terrorist targets, which have really increased 
in the second um, presidential administration of Barack Obama and have remarkably high levels of public support in polling that the New York Times has done since the end of our study. Um, the second part of this dark side, then, is that sometimes attitudes toward government, they're insulated from reality. So when real conditions change, when the risk of terrorism goes down, when essentially Osama bin Laden has been killed, we would think, well, if public opinion is rational, there's an adaptation. It might take a while, but people will, on average, adapt to a new reality. And when it comes to the trade-off of liberty and security, they will because they value liberty and they see security as not necessarily being at much as risk, but we do support and that's where our study reports in a period from... So, so let's put that in layman's terms. When the threat's high, we uh, don't have a problem giving government additional powers that may infringe on civil liberties. And when the threat is lower, such as the killing of Osama bin Laden, maybe we want to take those liberties back. Is that what we're saying? That's exactly right. And that's what some early polling and scholarly work anticipated in the couple years after the 9-11 attack. The expectation was, look... Um, America won the Cold War. Globalization is in part about not just free markets, but protecting human rights. Americans value liberty. So sure, crisis, there'll be a, a willingness to put limits on liberties, but things will return to a, a reasonable status quo ante. And since it looks like in some instances that hasn't happened, that's where scholars like ourselves and other work we're building from have tried to figure out, you know, what is going on? Why is it that there's not a sort of a rational ratcheting back a willingness to um, support all sorts of new and intrusive government spying, controversial uh, presidential authorization of assassination, and a whole new kind of set of coercive and surveillance activities that, you know, are they in proportion to what is needed? And that's where we, we use this idea of the dark side to refer to this phenomenon. I understand. I guess what you're saying is, is that our tolerance for the amount of civil liberties that we're willing to give is rather elastic. But sometimes we don't go back and reclaim those civil liberties, and then that becomes a bit of a curiosity for a social scientist. You talk about something called that I had never heard before, and it really fascinated me, something called threat priming. Uh, tell us what that is. That's something that there's a distinguished tradition of research that we're just tinkering a little bit with, but it applies very well to post-9-11 opinion formation. It goes like this. Um, anytime there's a threat that's perceived as serious to the in-group, um, people search for everything from a strong leader, their willingness to spend liberties, they start thinking about death. This is something that's been found in surveys in the laboratory, and it's a, it's a rich vein of post-World War II work. So along comes 9-11, an enormous threat, saturation media coverage, thousands dead. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible tragedy of, of proportions in the new millennium that is viscerally felt by everyone. So is it surprising that all of a sudden there's both dramatic government activities that are coercive and responding to this new reality? Maybe not. Is it surprising Americans are willing to give support? Maybe not. But where threat priming is coming in is that even if the environment changes, where this theory has uh, anticipates our idea of the dark side is this. What if the threats really go down? What if, in a sense, as has recently been coming out of some of the security community, what if it turns out, as one official we cite, that, quote, al-Qaeda wasn't as good as we thought they were? What if it turns out, by the time bin Laden is taken out, essentially threats aren't that real? That's where threat priming means more than just real threats. It means any time there's a communication of fear, threat, even if it's exaggerated, even if it's symbolic, people may unwittingly really just uh, process it 
and essentially do things like be willing to support all sorts of new intrusive activities. And that leads us to this dark side idea that I mentioned earlier. I, I have to ask you this. If we're moving, if the government's moving down one course of action and the threat is subsiding, uh, but they see cause to continue moving down that, is there a sense that they can use this threat priming to manipulate public opinion? Well, that's something that um, we discuss a little bit, and a lot of a lot of other scholarship has taken up this idea that, well, you know, maybe essentially you can create a perpetual motion machine if you're a policy official with with great um, power and access to the media. And I think there's a story there that we're telling a little bit of it, but I think there's a more powerful um, idea that that should be set out here, which is this: sometimes with Americans' willingness to support intrusive government activity, even when policy officials aren't preaching threat or fear or necessarily communicating as strongly that Americans' fundamental existence is at risk, sometimes there can be a self-perpetuating quality to mass opinion. And that's why this dark side is this metaphor we're fond of, this idea that it's not so much that Americans have thought out the line between security and liberty, it's just once unleashed. This willingness to give government a, a blank new check is hard to pull back. I think where political leadership comes in is it's possible, and this is something that we and other scholars suspect, especially if both political parties agree, and they essentially say, look, war and terror is over. We are going to rethink. We're going to try to close down Guantanamo Bay. We are going to rein in NSA wiretapping, whether now there's retroactive legal authorization or not. Then the public really has no place to go. The threats have been muscled aside. So while that hasn't happened yet, that's one key condition under which political leadership might matter. And in some ways, public opinion gets put right back in the initial box it was in. Well, let's talk about some specifics. We talked about uh, surveillance without warrants. What other kind of civil liberties have we allowed to be intruded on and have maybe, because the threat is lesser, have not gone back and recovered? I think a good example was from what we call the rights violation experiment. And what we were interested in, and this is where we got the title of the study, is this kind of a new paradox posed by globalization. Maybe when any of us think about rights, we're thinking about our rights versus the other guy's rights. And one of the kind of senses we had, um, you know, living as we were in a new environment where there was a new sense of existential threat, is maybe Americans are carving a distinction between, is it Americans' rights? to privacy, innocent until proven guilty? Is it Americans' rights or foreign nationals' rights that matter? So what we did in the, the rights violation experiment, we took a survey item that was just bald-faced asking individuals about whether rights and liberty should be suspended, but we altered experimentally whether we were priming individuals who were responding to our survey to think about Americans' rights or foreign nationals' rights. What we found is there was an interesting experimental effect there's a lot more support for maintaining Americans' rights than foreign, foreign nationals' rights. That's right. Well, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, some of these experimental surveys that you conducted, because I found them absolutely fascinating. We have to take another break. When we come back, we're going to find out exactly where American, the American public uh, draws the line. You're listening to the Costa Report. ask 
talked and we listened. The new and improved paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle is now available in bookstores everywhere, including airports across the country. If you've been hemming and hawing about not having time to go online or pick up a copy, well, now you don't have any excuses. Find out why government gridlock, terrorism, epidemic obesity, crime on Wall Street, even problems with education and healthcare have an evolutionary basis to them. Because when you do, you'll never look at our problems the same way. So pick up the freshly printed paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle. Don't wait, do it now. Give yourself a real reason to feel optimistic. That's The Watchman's Rattle, available everywhere you are. In celebration of World Oceans Day on Saturday, June 8th, the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary invites you to a one-day showing of the Beneath the Waves Film Festival at the Sanctuary Exploration Center. The festival includes talks by marine scientists, live music, hands-on activities, plus ocean and coastal exhibits. Admission is free. That's Saturday, June 8th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Sanctuary Exploration Center, across from the Santa Cruz Wharf. Come have fun and explore beneath the waves. Coast Paper and Supply has been family-owned and operated since 1948. They have a wide array of products available, including brand name and eco-friendly cleaning supplies, paper goods, and compostable plates, cups, and cutlery. Whether your needs are for business or home, Coast Paper and Supply's friendly and reliable staff have what you're looking for. They even accommodate special orders. You can find them at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4.30, or call at 831-423-3350. Coast Paper and Supply is a proud member of Think Local First. Prop's Restaurant and Flight Lion Lounge. They were new a year ago. They're still new, but they're better than ever. The menu's been expanded. They still have a great full bar. They're offering specials now five nights a week instead of just one. And also watch the planes come in for landings and takeoffs and enjoy a great salad, appetizer, drink, and a full menu of 10 specialty sandwiches, about a dozen specialty burgers, wonderful specials. Let me give you an example. Their Wednesday night prime rib special, a great 14-ounce cut of prime rib with a baked potato and green beans is only $16. Try beating that. Monday night specials, barbecue ribs. Thursday is surf and turf, prawns and steak, only $16. Props Restaurant and Flight Line Lounge. Open every single day for lunch and dinner. Take the airport boulevard exit off of Highway 1, half a mile down the road to Aviation Way, to your left, and there you are at Props Restaurant and Flight Line Lounge. Go, eat, drink, and enjoy. Go on Facebook, look at Props, and make your entry for their new slogan. You might win the first sweatshirt that comes off the line with your slogan on it. Hey, it's MZ with 90 for Life update number one. So what am I talking about? What's 90 for Life? Simple, it's the underlying foundation of the longevity company and its product users. The belief that if you give your body all 90 essential nutrients, you will live a longer, healthier life, free of disease and complications from toxic prescription drugs. 90 for Life is a lifestyle marked by taking the longevity Healthy Start Pack faithfully twice a day, seven days a week. One Healthy Start Pack is a month's supply for the average person, and the cost of this pack is $125 including tax. That works out to about $4.17 per day. Pick up your Healthy Start Pack from Dave Michaels here at KSCO Studios weekday afternoons after 1 p.m. or order it online at kscoteam.com or stop by Knox Roofing on El Pueblo in Scotts Valley, the first of several convenient pickup locations for the 90 for Life Healthy Start Pack. We want our KSCO KOMY listeners to be healthy as well as intelligent. Go to kscoteam.com, KSCO Studios after 1 p.m. or Knox Roofing. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is American sociologist and author of Whose Rights? Counterterrorism and the Dark Side of American Public Opinion. As you were beginning to talk about in the last segment, you conducted some experimental surveys that you sent out where you increased the threat level uh, from certain groups to see if um, that would have some effect on our willingness uh, to accept things like waterboarding, for example. That's right. What uh, what we're trying to do is reasoning is complicated, how people figure out whether they support or oppose a policy that um, is complicated. It's almost deliberately crafted to make it hard to unpack. If we think Patriot Act, well, it's telling us it's got a kind of a nice adjective in there, but how should we figure out where we stand on it? What experiments are doing is trying to hold everything constant, they're varying one thing that the scholar has a hunch matters, and then trying to see, well, is this the lever that when we push it, support goes up or down? Let me mention one thing that surprised us that I think is a, a lever that we're, we're really struck by and we think is something important that um, scholars should really take up, and it has to do with who a policy is seen as targeting. Now, one of the really interesting effects we find with these experiments and the surveys we've done is that it really matters if respondents think a punitive or coercive or tough policy applies to somebody who is an American citizen or somebody who is not an American citizen. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the average American is going to say, well, of course, that's obvious, but it wasn't obvious until we did the experiment and we really found rigorous scientific evidence that, in fact, this colors how people reason about the same policy. So what the experiments give us leverage on same survey question, same question about policy. We just vary who is perceived as being the recipient, the target of the policy, and then support for coercive policy tends to go down if it's now Americans whose rights are at risk versus support goes up if it's foreign nationals whose rights are seen as part of the trade-off with the policy. Isn't that part of our problem with our foreign policy? Don't we, aren't we perceived as having a bit of a double standard? What applies to the rest of the world doesn't apply to us, particularly if you're threatening our country. Uh, take the drone program that you mentioned earlier. We have a schizophrenic relationship with those drones. We love them as long as they're going after the bad guys on somebody else's soil. But we're not too fond about thinking about drones in our own country. I think that's, that's exactly in line with what we found. And I think the issue it raises that go beyond anything we're trying to do for the ordinary member of the public, for constitutional lawyers, for politicians, for discussions around the water cooler is sort of, you know, what do we make of this double standard? Is this going to lead us into, you know, grave problems abroad? Are we setting a standard that if rights only apply to Americans and Americans like Americans' rights, what does this tell us? And I think that's where we, in part, end up by the end of this study. And let me also flip things around and say, well, in some ways, however, well, this might not be a comforting portrait to many um, critics of policies that are, you know, military commissions, past use of torture, the drone program. Um, it is rather important that Americans do support their own liberties. And this is something that I think is updated, a more negative view of the American public. In the 1950s, the thinking was, in the titles of books like The Authoritarian Personality, Americans didn't even support their own liberties. They just simply had a reflexive trust of authority under stress and duress conditions. And that's what we find, and that's why I think is there's openings for a careful discussion, rethinking, and really a great debate over these policies. And I think in some ways that's what we're getting. We're getting a new turn in 
the Obama administration, the media, the critical press. There's a great new debate that's been unfolding about the drone program, two to 3,000 people killed, a lot of innocents may be killed, and there's a lot of debate amongst members of the reading public, amongst lawyers, amongst administration officials, amongst military specialists, amongst scholars. And I think that really speaks to how, well, there is this complicated line that Americans straddle. It's not that they're un unconditionally supportive of any sort of authoritarian policy. It's just there is this tendency to say, well, here's our rights and there's others. The drone program, essentially very popular according to CBS New York Times estimates, when it comes to surveillance of Americans, that's far less popular. And I think that's really in line with what we found in this study. Well, I think you point out in the 1950s, for example, or earlier, we believed that government would protect our liberties so there was less uh, individual concern maybe during that time obviously with the kind of news that we've just even had recently in the last couple months of irs overreach and surveillance by all the telcos that was ordered by the government um, you know these are the kinds of things that sound the alarm and cause us to feel that well maybe the government isn't so much looking out for my independent uh, civil liberties but your survey did reveal one very interesting characteristic that i i just found fascinating that Americans would prefer that counterterrorism be handled by legislation and legal means rather than covert actions, even abroad. That's right. Sometimes this is called policy feedback, where the persuasive symbol of law, of government action, especially institutions that in the past have been trusted, like the Supreme Court, it kind of pulls Americans along. Now, if you're a critic of policy, you would see this as um, the sly or not-so-sly way the government creates the demand for its own legitimacy. But there's an upside I think the critics have to acknowledge, which is that there is a distinction carved there. And when it comes to war and terror, a lot of the, the, the most egregious aspects of it really have been in some ways reined in, the non-legal aspects. And the fact that two presidential administrations in a row have felt great pressure to bring in line with legal practice things like warrantless surveillance um, and warrantless wiretapping, I think there's a lot of room for debate and critical, uh, critical discussion of this. But the fact that everyone feels pulled along by the law is important to get the bookkeeping right is really important. But I think it's interesting that we don't want covert government action aimed at American citizens, but neither do we like it so much aimed at our potential enemies abroad. I think that's right. And let me mention one thing, since um, all our discussion of the dark side might paint what is a two one-dimensional portrait of the American public and American government. I think there's a real sort of a, a light at the end of the tunnel with the war and terror. And I think if we think about um, administration officials and experts now, for the most part, thinking um, the era of torture is or should be over. There's a great rethinking about the drone program. Bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, the military capability of these, um, you know, these, these, um, these terrorists has been dramatically degraded. And I think what's going on now is a, is a debate amongst experts that could easily filter into the public, in a sense, being pushed back to a, a more pro-liberties position. So if this debate amongst experts trends in the way we might expect, that you know, maybe the war on terror is over. We have a lot of powerful legal and law enforcement techniques to go after the bad guys, to find the people who threaten Americans and threaten national security, well, that, I think, is going to, in a sense, put back in, you know, in a much very different light how Americans are going to regard actions. And this, the powerful force of government, will likely bring along Americans into a more pro-liberty posture. And that's something we could very well see unfolding 
It hasn't to this day, but it could very well unfold in the next three to five years. And so what are our attitudes toward Guantanamo right now? We don't see that in the headline news. And, you know, Obama claimed that he was going to close it down. Uh, We're kind of stuck. We've had people there for 10 years that we have not, you know, brought to trial. And they don't even know what they're accused of. Uh, What do we do with Guantanamo? And what is the American view of Guantanamo right now? What we found in the results we report, and then some that didn't make into our book, we found is, is some complications and some complexity. One has to do with this distinction I mentioned. When we described inmates and detainees at Guantanamo in the abstract, there was a lot of support for keeping um, Guantanamo open and running this, you know, this um, extra-legal um, arrangement. When we re-describe the uh, detainees in a more favorable way, then support goes down. So that's not a source of complexity. And that's a little like the drone program, as you mentioned earlier. If the drones were being used um, in targeting Americans, we'd see, of course, support would go down. And that's an interesting contrast. Um, the second, I think the second key side of this, there's a lot of support for military commissions, precisely because in 2006, there's a retroactive new legal architecture created to really justify um, things like Guantanamo Bay and military commissions. And that's been something that's created this this but a sense of legitimacy for these new and kind of military-based alternative prison systems. Absolutely, and those are alternatives we didn't have earlier on. We have to take our last break, and we'll be right back after this short message from our sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars. Now, there's a number of ways you can taste wines at the tasting room. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, we currently have nine different wines on our tasting menu, and we really want it to be an experience where you get to taste the wine that you want to taste. So if you want to taste Pinot, you can really focus your flight around that. If you wanted to focus on the bubbles, we have three different sparklings that will allow you to build your flight that way. Or if you came in and you just wanted to taste one wine, we would uh, have it set up for you to be able to do that as well. Now, what's a flight? A flight is basically a combination of small tastes of different wines. If you wanted to taste all of our different Chardonnays, you could taste the 2007 Chardonnay, the 2008, and the 2009, and we would line you up with an individual taste of each of them. Thank you for being with us again, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious, but some of the most powerful disease-fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes, from salads to desserts and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouthwatering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish. 
The Santa Cruz Public Libraries connects people with books. We inspire with poetry writing sessions, small business seminars, and book discussion groups. We teach early literacy and ebooks classes. We answer questions. Ask us about the summer reading program that begins on June 10th and ends on July 28th. Browse our website, santacruzpl.org. Use our free app, SCPL to go. Visit a branch or text us. Connect, inspire, inform. The Santa Cruz Public Libraries. Libraries. All right, everybody, listen up. Vitamingoddess.com. That's right. Vitamingoddess.com or vitamingod.com. <laughs> what are you laughing at? What? You've heard me for years proclaim the advantages of getting all your essential supplements, vitamins, and minerals. But of course, where else? VitaminGoddess.com. You can remember that. VitaminGoddess.com. VitaminGoddess.com. Come on. Or VitaminGod.com. Why? Because it seems like everybody in their monkey's uncle is on the internet. So why not you? If you are, check it out. Go see a beautiful website and a beautiful way to get all your supplements. VitaminGoddess.com or VitaminGod.com. And remember, may you live long and prosper. Drink Explore Radio is your lifestyle information source. Our focus includes food, wine, craft beer, travel and tourism trends, emphasizing healthy, local and sustainable options. We've got you covered from 8 to 10 each and every Sunday morning, live right here on KSCO AM 1080. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, your source for the lifestyle you love. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Dr. Clem Brooks. And before we went to the break, we were talking about American attitudes toward our civil liberties, which is not only shaped by the degree of fear that we perceive, but also by whether the government powers are directed to non-American citizens or to American citizens. And so uh, the example that we were using was drones. You know, we like drones fine as long as they're on foreign soil and going after the bad guys. Now, you conclude in your book uh, with a very sobering statement. Uh, I want to just, I I never do this on the program, but this really struck me. And uh, so I just want to take a moment to to, uh, let the listeners hear what that statement is. I, I don't think I'm giving the whole book away, but here we go. Understanding the politics of the war on terror without mass opinion may be akin to envisioning a contemporary production of Shakespeare without the possibility of an audience to which theatrical performers play and with respect to which the tickets are purchased and the bills ultimately paid. So so let me ask you, if the relationship elected officials have to the general public is the same as actors on the stage have with their audience, then that would mean that they have an actual script, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, it's interesting you you chose that um, passage because I think what what our book is trying to do, and what a lot of work on other topics is trying to do, is say, look, you know, we hear a lot of talk about the media, or a lot of talk about um, the market, or a lot of talk about experts, or a lot of talk about interest groups. But what about the public? When it comes to policy, you know, the public is bound to play a critical role. Now, there might be instances in which we, 
we generally approve of that, or there might be alternatives, but we don't. But in some sense, you know, with this work that Manz and I are doing in this book and elsewhere, and what a lot of other scholars, I think, are increasingly doing is saying, look, it matters what Americans want. And in a lot of the great interplay and conflict over ideas, the age, and, you know, and all sorts of risks and opportunities, a lot of what's going on is, you know, who's going to reach the public? What is the public going to want? And this seems like a pretty obvious question if you have a view of people as vacuuming up all the information out there, figuring out their self-interest. And if everyone's doing it, there should never be a stock market bubble. There should never be a, a failed war. Everything should go well. Well, I think, you know, a lot of what social science, you know, this sort is saying is, no, it's more complicated. If the public vacuums up information according to what biases they already have, if Americans tend to view things through the lens of, let's put America first, let's preserve our liberties in a more restrictive way, then things get interesting for social science because it looks like things are not operating as democratically or rationally or, or in, as, in as much an egalitarian fashion as we'd like. That's right, and that is the uh, that's the hunting ground for the social scientists. That's for sure. Uh, let me ask you this: where where do we go from here? I mean, what do you see happening to civil liberties in the United States? Because we know that North Korea is going to continue to escalate their saber rattling, and Iran's going to continue with their nuclear program, and we face even greater instability in the Middle East than we did just a year ago. Where does this all wind up? Because the threats keep on coming. Well. Maybe in part because it's summer and um, looking back on, on the, the predictions that, that Manz and I made in this book, I think one thing I would say now is I think there's a lot of grounds for a kind of optimism. Now, um, scholars always like to say now I could be wrong, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be wrong here, but let me make an optimistic forecast. I think what we're now seeing in 2013 is a lot of, a lot of expert debate coming to the fore. There's a sense that this drone program needs to be brought under more directly under military control. Hence, in his May speech, President Obama is essentially laying out this process by which this would go from a covert CIA program into one that the Department of Defense will own. And by doing that, that means that the program doesn't work. It's going to be the Pentagon that is more likely to be accountable rather than a spy agency. Now, for the average American, this might not seem like a big deal, but this is a pretty strong move. It's especially a strong move when this program is so popular. And I think the way to understand it is that, well, oftentimes it takes a long time before experts may start agreeing, questioning whether some policy is a good one or not. And I think that's important. I think where it's harder to be optimistic if you're a civil libertarian is what you mentioned at the outset to your show, that it's remarkable just how much information, not just now from, from international banking, not just now from email, but from social media sites, from Internet usage, terabytes and terabytes of, of information being collected on just who calls whom. And this is, I think, someplace where the experts need to step in and say, look, how much is this going to find Iwan al-Zahari? How much is this going to keep Americans safe? It's not clear why we're doing it. It's not really clear if there's any kind of basis for it. It certainly goes way beyond any pre-9-11 idea we have about, you know, let's only go after the bad guys, let's have a warrant. You know, let's not have all the snooping. And this is where I think you'd have to be a little more optimistic than I am now to think this can be so easily reined in. What our book is saying is these things aren't that popular once Americans feel it's their email, their Facebook account that's really being snooped on and hacked and maybe used in all sorts of purposes. And this is where I think we're going to eventually see a, a debate coming to a fore. Around well, what I find so surprising 
is that, you know, we have situations like the Verizon uh, uh, scandal that's emerging right now. And then the government doesn't understand why everybody doesn't want to go to electronic medical records. Well, I think people are worried. They're worried. I mean, this kind of thing comes out and it makes everybody worried. It makes people feel that people are spying on their banking, that they're listening in on their phone calls. It's exactly the kind of thing. In fact, an earlier talk show host mentioned this. He said, I thought we fought the Cold War because we were against this stuff. Well, I think that's right, and I think that's where it's hard. And, and by the way, we won the Cold War, but I'm not so sure we did. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and that's where it's hard not to see the perpetual motion idea coming to a fore, where, well, however justified it was, once you, you do all these things that might infringe liberties of individuals without any real, real kind of evidentiary basis, once people start sensing this, once these programs get set in place, you know, why wouldn't it be that Americans start being worried about the Supreme Court or about the IRS or about even register their, registering their automobile every year? And this is, we know this is counterproductive. We want people to pay taxes and follow just laws. But it's one thing for this to be a fantasy, right? It's one thing to hear stories and gossip that the IRS cherry picks who they want to go after. It's another thing to have the President of the United States come and apologize. Then it's not fantasy anymore. Well, the thing I'd say there, in some ways, living in democracy means there's a lot of room for errors. The fact that elected officials feel they have to restore a sense of trust, even if it's late in the game, even if it's under pressure, I think we should regard that as a good sign for the health of American democracy. The second thing I'd say is I think if Manz and I were to return to this topic in five or ten years' time, I think the part of it, I'm pretty sure Gitmo will eventually be closed down. This is 150-plus detainees there. 50 have already been okayed for transfer, as I understand it, back to Yemen primarily, if that could be worked out. I think a lot of these really high-priority, high-visibility parts of the war and terror are going to possibly fade. I think the part that might be here to stay that is going to be widely debated is surveillance, surveillance of all electronic stores that it just, it just runs through every dimension of our, our life, from social media through electronic banking through electronic communication. And this might be really where... Um, you know, where there's a legacy there, that there's going to be a lot to study and a lot for people to, you know, really kind of keep an eye on if they worry about this balance of security and liberty. Well, on that note, um, we would love to have you back again to continue this conversation because I think it's, it is an important one and it needs to be had. And there are very few mediums uh, anymore left on the radio and television where we can have this kind of discussion. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you to take the time to be with us today. Before we let you go, can you tell listeners where they can go to get your book and how they can stay in touch with your work? Well, they can go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com and uh, purchase it there. It's put out by the Russell Sage Foundation, and it's available uh, It's available in those two outlets. Okay, well, that's all the time we have today. Before I say goodbye, I would like to thank you very much for your important eye-opening research. It is important work, and I hope people will go out and get this book. It's called Who's Rights. Uh, thank you, Dr. Brooks. Thank you, Rebecca. 
If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you'd like to comment on today's program, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or contact me on Facebook and Twitter. And if you haven't done so yet, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can find all of our recent videos and interviews. And you can also catch the full interview with Dr. Brooks on our website if you missed part of that at the beginning. That's RebeccaCosta.com, just my name.com. Next week, we have a special treat in store. One of our country's most revered experts on the First Amendment, the legendary Floyd Abrams, will be joining me here in the studio. In fact, he is such an expert that many briefs and arguments Abrams has presented before the Supreme Court have been adopted as constitutional interpretive law. He'll be with us to talk about how the Internet, national security, and the Citizens United ruling may forever change our once sacred right to speech. Don't miss Floyd Abrams next week right here on your favorite weekly news magazine. The only talk show host you can trust to put principles ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report. What does your website do for you? Does it simplify doing business and automate routine tasks? Does it connect with your target audience and bring new business? If you can't answer yes, then you need to contact Sunstar Media. Located on the Monterey Peninsula for over 17 years, Sunstar Media has developed websites for startups, brick-and-mortar stores, to corporations on the stock market. What makes Sunstar different is the customization that goes into every site, tailored to each client's unique needs and vision. Sunstar's experienced pros keep you ahead of the game with their custom-fit development process for website applications that cater to your company's specific needs. Learn more at sunstarmedia.com. Mention you heard this ad on the Rebecca Costa Show and get a free web analysis report on your current site or a free web consultation for your next project. Let's discuss how Sunstar can help you. Reach out to us at sunstarmedia.com. If you want to work until you drop, reduce your standard of living in retirement or lose more of your hard-earned money in the stock market, then just ignore me. But if you'd like to generate a steady, predictable income, I'm talking real wealth and financial security for as long as you live, then listen to this. A free report is now available that reveals the money-making secrets Wall Street and the banks don't want you to know. This report reveals how you can get guaranteed growth, safety, and wealth-building power without risking your hard-earned money in the Wall Street casino. How you can bypass banks and credit cards and become your own source of financing. And how to get the money you need when you need it, simply by asking for it. This is the best way to have a 100% secure retirement and know your money will last as long as you do. And it beats the pants off any IRA or 401k. To learn more about this method and to get your free special report, visit bankonyourself.com right now. That's bankonyourself.com. www.bankonyourself.com. From San Jose to Salinas, Red Hot News Talk, AM 1080, KSCO Santa Cruz. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. 
visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.